Hello, I am your host, Mike Gelb, and welcome to the Consumer VC, where we're going to be diving into the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. Our guest today is Jordan Knopf, managing partner and the head of investments at Tusk Venture Partners. Jordan has led many of the fund's capital investments, including Lemonade, Bird, Alma, and Sunday. He currently serves on the board of directors of Alma and Sunday. Prior to Tusk Venture Partners, Jordan spent six years as a director at Blackstone, where he focused on the development of the firm's corporate venture capital portfolio. I had a great time chatting with Jordan and learned a ton. So without further ado, here's Jordan. Well, Jordan, thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the show. How are you today? Great. Thanks for having me. So, Jordan, what made you leave Blackstone in order to go into venture capital and join Tusk? Yeah, I think that really at its core, it's something, you know, I really wanted to build something for myself. In the sense I wanted to become an entrepreneur uh, and I wanted to create an environment uh, where early stage investing is really ingrained in the DNA of the firm. Uh, throughout my time at Blackstone, uh, you know, I was able to to learn a lot. And it's a, it's a tremendous firm. They're definitely masters at their craft of, uh, in the private investing space, uh, you know, on the leverage buyout end. Um, however, it's really difficult to shift the focus of a firm. And uh, I knew that early stage investing would really never be um, what is in the limelight for Blackstone. And so it just made sense for me to go out and set up my own shingle with with, with my partner now and, and start our own bond. I love the entrepreneurial spirit. Tell me a little bit about Tusk, your thesis. Yeah, so um, as far as it goes with kind of our our, our thesis and, and where we look to invest, so typically what what we're doing is is we're 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 an edge we're an early stage venture fund. So really our focus is on investing in startups that are operating in highly regulated markets or creating new verticals altogether where there is no regulatory framework that exists today. Typically that looks post product. So let's say institutional seed or series A is really our sweet spot. We typically do more consumer than enterprise, and typically it's in North America. The reason for consumer versus enterprise is that given the focus on on the regulatory, political, and media side, you know, regulations exist to protect consumers, not not businesses. So that's where naturally we have uh, the greatest uh, impact on the investments that we make. Um, from a stage perspective, as I mentioned, earlier stage is better for us on the uh, from a, a point of entry. But we try to be able to add value throughout the course of the life cycle of, of every startup that we invest in. What about investing in startups uh, or verticals that are in regulated industries? Why does that excite you? And uh, what is the Tusk advantage? The notion whenever we created when we created Tusk Venture Partners um, was that in order to be successful as, as a venture firm uh, over the long run, you, you do need to, to create a, a differentiated product or offering that, that you're providing entrepreneurs. Um, and so what I found in my partner Bradley was uh, kind of marrying the venture capital investor, you know, generalist hat with somebody with a deep expertise with navigating complex political, regulatory, and media-related issues. And the ultimate thesis that, that, that we had was that, that companies that are, uh, you know, emerging in vertical, creating new verticals altogether, uh, eventually, if they become relevant and successful, will they will end up uh, facing regulatory hurdles, um, just in the, in the spirit of regulation always lagging innovation. 
And if we're the only fund that sits at the nexus of technology, politics, and regulation, we can make a, a, a fantastic partner for, for these early stage companies. Um, and it just makes our dollars greener than the next fund that's only offering generalist services to their portfolio companies. One of your focuses on startups that maybe are creating new verticals altogether. How do you think about TAM and the size of the actual market for these types of startups where, you know, a, a vertical doesn't exist yet? So uh, how, how, do we think, how do we think about it is, is typically uh, we, we, we spend a lot of time analyzing what we think the market looks like today and some relevant comps uh, from, from that. But ultimately, if we think that that market size could change, um, it's almost always wrong. I'm going to go ahead and say that uh, right off right off the bat. Uh, I think a great example of that is is an uh, uh, early stage investment that we made not too long ago, but they've kind of been a very fast growing company. Was uh, is Bird? So we invested in Bird at the Series A. There were 68 scooters that were operational at the time. There were five people working out of a WeWork in Santa Monica. Um, and the you know thinking about the TAM. You draw the analogy of, okay, we understand how large the bike sharing docked market is, but what happens whenever you remove the docks and you remove the friction that's associated with 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 uh, with some of the bike sharing problems that you've seen in New York and other major markets and you know introduce a concept um, that that is just uh, it's not it's, it's not something that it's not a brand new technology. It's just the right time. For it to be introduced to the market, um, you know, you have proxies for for ride sharing as well. Uh, so really, you need to assess kind of where you think that is today, um, and what the company looks like if they can take a meaningful market market share without growing the market, and then revisit it um, from the context of what does the world look like five years from now um, if this takes if this actually takes off. So the the, the leap that you needed to make to invest. At, in Bird at the Series A was, you know, are people going to be willing to take scooters as a primary method of transportation to and from work? That that was that was the leap that you needed to make, um, because we knew that they would they were going the trips were one to three miles, the same length as an Uber ride. So um, you know, the the total addressable market was in <laughs> whenever we go back and reflect on on our memo that we wrote about about the investment. We got a lot of things wrong, but I think that underestimating the market size, luckily we, we ended up getting to a yes, but underestimating the market was, was, was uh, significant. What makes you excited about investing in consumer companies in today's landscape? That's a really great question. Um, you know, I think that at the end of the day, consumer, you know, I, I'm excited about consumer because that's where we, uh, you know, are our competitive advantage is, you know, more more applicable on the consumer side than on the enterprise. And also, just in terms of investing in consumer versus enterprise in general, those are typically if you happen to find a company that does enter hypergrowth, um, you don't really see companies just go through that transformation that transformation as quickly as you do on the enterprise side as you can for consumer. So, you know, companies can't be built and attract. Uh, and this is a function solely of sales cycles. So you're not going to see companies that, that can attract um, hundreds of thousands of users over the course of a few months on the enterprise end. 
it's just a, it's a slower cycle, but it's uh, it's something that that can be really exciting. What are some consumer verticals that you're most excited about currently? I know that you mentioned bird and transportation, but what are other verticals that you're excited about that you think are ripe for disruption? In terms of broader, you know, broader landscape, just verticals that that are core to our our DNA and our logical extensions and are reflected in our portfolio already. Um, you know, transportation, as you mentioned, fintech overall. So that includes everything from insurance technology, real estate technology, all wrapped up under under one um, big asset class, big big vertical. Um, I think that also, uh, whenever you look at digital health and the transformation that's happening there, that's something that we're really excited about. Um, and obviously, the common thread here is the uh, the the, the level of regulation that exists today. And the amount of opportunity that's there to create products that are at least ten times better than the current product that's in market. So, um, you know, for a long time, venture funds were shied away from investing in highly regulated markets because it's a very difficult risk to assess. And I think that that's you know one of the core core comp- competencies of, of our of our firm is that we we have those insights and can properly evaluate those additional risks. When should a company have their product market fit when it comes to consumer? So, and everybody, everybody has an opinion on it. Um, and it's something that, you know, these are kind of guardrails that I like to think about to help make informed, systematic, uh, you know, decisions and to look back at your portfolio and see, you know, if, if, if you were right or not and help that inform future decisions. It's interesting, though, because, you know, the initial notion is that you really want some form of traction, meaningful traction or product market fit to be demonstrated uh, at or about at the Series A. That that can take different forms. That doesn't necessarily need to be tied to a revenue number. I know that some firms want to see, uh, you know, traction defined by a certain amount of ARR or a certain run rate revenue at, at the Series A, whether that's you know, somewhere between two to $5 million. However, if I take that framework and apply that to our portfolio, we would have passed on some of the, the fastest growing companies in our first fund. So that we would have missed out on, on, on both Bird and Lemonade. Wow. What are some of the metrics that you use in order to measure if a company has product market fit? There's not really one answer to that. Uh, you know, sometimes there's, sure, there's some quick screens that you can do. Um, but I think that Really, if it's a if it's a consumer if it's a consumer company, you're going to look at everything from from uh, you know if it's it really matters what type of, of of product you're 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 describing. And I'll give you examples where you can kind of piece together product market fit based on uh, demand from 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 an enterprise uh, and a problem that you know needs to be solved. So, for example, if you're looking at uh, a digital health platform that's um, trying to provide a uh, you know, addiction rehabilitation uh, treatment using medication-assisted therapy for the opioid epidemic. You know the problem exists, right? You know there's a huge market for it, and if you have an insurance company saying that they want to utilize this platform as the sole solution to their to their to their underlying companies that uh, you know rely on their healthcare, that's a pretty good proxy for product market fit. You know, on the enterprise side talking to to the CTOs of large companies that, that are using the product and why they like it and they're willing to be vocal about it is one way to do it. On the consumer end, it's a little bit harder because consumers are, are somewhat fickle. But I do believe that that the real product far, real product market fit is whenever you find some uh, a customer that is 
staying engaged with a platform or with a product and that consumer base is growing either they're they're increasing their their average order value they're increasing their their level of engagement that that's that's a real core component um i i do think that that there are that not every consumer is considered equal so i try not to rely too heavily on just number of downloads or initial orders that that come through the door but uh i think it's much more of leveraging several data points to come up with a much more informed decision I had one investor that says, in terms of product market fit for a consumer, you you kind of know it when you see it. No, and I agree with that. It's it's definitely it's it, it shouldn't be limited to product market fit should not just be limited to one company. You know, it's something that if you were to go to go back to the bird example, you can get. Pro- it was very apparent that product market fit was there based on retention numbers. I think that that that's that's something that's really important, and that's how something really goes viral on the consumer end. Is if very strong growth rate continues for for a prolonged period of time and no one's churning off the platform. But then in addition to that, you're going to see a bunch of market, new market entrants come into the fold. And that that's kind of codifies your 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 assessment that there is market fit because you you start to see a lot of new players enter. What are some qualities that you if you maybe have a checklist or must-haves that that founders must possess or at least that you like to see founders possess? With regards to just founders or with regards to just uh, kind of the the kind of core screening aspect of, of any anybody coming in to, to pitch our partnership, I think that primary focus is a lot of it is going to be on the team. So the founder is, is uh, you know, that that's where really where we're really trying to evaluate the execution risk that's associated with the deal. I think that is, if it's a big market that they're going after, that's that's great. But really kind of the core value that we're looking to assess in a founder is, is this the right team to, to go after this large market? Um, because my opportunity cost of investing in that that idea is that I now I can invest in in a potentially stronger team that that's going to come pitch me the same idea several months from now. And so I think that the focus on on founders that exhibit specific traits um, that that's a great great question, and it's one that if it boils down to it, it's you know what have they overcome to get to this point, and what's their ability to overcome obstacles in the future at its core. So the grit and the tenacity to just to get in front of a venture fund to 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 pitch an idea, it takes a lot of work. You got to get a warm introduction, and if, if some people that aren't that that come to you know that, that basically launch a company without some of the advantages of having a deep network uh, of people, if they didn't go to school at Harvard or at Stanford, they have to jump through a lot more hoops. You know, people that have unfortunately, uh, you know, I feel like there's a lot more hoops that women need to jump through. Or, or minorities than 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 other people just to get in front of a venture fund. Um, we try and consider all those things because those are those are trailing indicators that show how how somebody can overcome obstacles that will definitely occur throughout the course of a business lifecycle. Those are all excellent examples. How do you think about the future of regulation in maybe certain industries or verticals? You know, this is something where we leverage the political and the regulatory side of, of our firm. Um, you know, my team consists on, on the on the fund side. Um, you know, we're we're investment professionals that we're lucky enough to have access to a significant number of political, regulatory, and media um, you know, specialists. So I think that we're always looking for informed views on potential changes to regulation that that could 
open up new avenues to 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 apply technology and solve solve very large problems. A good example here is is in healthcare right now with digital health. Our view on the on the regulatory landscape, I guess, on telemedicine specifically, that we're going to continue to see loosening regulations around that, and that obviously expands the reach and increases the the application of of technology to kind of a bunch of different aspects of of the the healthcare ecosystem. So we, we, that's a part of our lens into uh, evaluating each company. It's something that a lot of times focus of a founder is to mitigate a regulatory risk that we don't think is as, as important as they, they view it as, but also kind of informing them about risks that they need to be aware, about, aware of as they grow. How do you think about good growth versus bad growth in this current era? This is something that specifically on the consumer side has changed a lot over over the last few years specifically. You know, one thing that definitely should be mentioned is the fact that uh, on the consumer product end, the notion of the the way to acquire customers has changed. So, you know, digital spend that you used to be able to put into to Google you know, AdWords have somewhat less value now, just given the fact that Amazon search uh, really is where 50% plus of consumer searches begin. So it's not starting on Google, it's actually starting within Amazon. And there's no keyword optimization that you can really do to uh, to market effectively um, on Amazon. But with that being said, you know, I, I, we do think that good growth and versus bad growth, a lot of that comes down to, to churn and uh, kind of acquiring customers, retaining customers at, at a price point that's sustainable and competitive where you're really getting high quality consumers onto the platform. That means that they kind of have high intent to, to purchase and the product they on the platform and really kind of increase the LTV to CAC ratio. That's, 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 a, that's a pretty pretty important metric for us. On your point about Amazon, do you think that Nike announcing that they're no longer selling on Amazon, do you think that's a big deal for D2C brands? It makes all the sense in the world for new companies to launch using a direct-to-consumer platform to prove out what we were talking about earlier, right? To prove out that the market wants what they're selling. You know, it gives you immediate reach and it gives you um, access to uh, what is now a growing population of people that prefer to purchase, um, you know, or at least research items online. And so I think that, that you know, to get up and running um, using a, a direct-to-consumer model makes, makes a lot of sense. Now, to stay with a, just a pure direct-to-consumer model does re- require a little bit more, uh, you know, more of a use case around uh, providing customized products that cannot be sold just in, in bulk on Amazon or in a traditional retail store. So uh, if the, to the extent that you're providing consumers with a bespoke solution, whether that is a, a slightly refined product or something that's curated specifically for them, it's, it's really a perfect application for the D2C uh, distribution channel. What is something that you would change when it came to venture capital? I think that this industry is under a lot of, it's, it's undergoing a tremendous shift right now to begin with. Um, we've seen this with kind of the old school marquee firms that have have been household names for for the valley for a long period of time. You know they've raised very large funds, and that's that's a shift that's happened in the landscape, right? So the people that used to be investing a hundred million dollar funds into traditional Series A now are managing much larger pools of capital. We've also seen a tremendous institutionalization of the pre-seed and seed round. And so there's just a lot more access points for capital, which is a good change because that requires people to add additional value to founders to be that preferred choice. So that, that increased competition is healthy. 
However, uh, it would be great to get some more diversity in terms of partnerships that are out there today. So we have increased number of women that work in venture in addition to, to you know, underrepresented you know, minorities that, that don't make up the, the bulk of people on the entrepreneur side or uh, on the venture capital investor end. Yeah, I mean, I've, I very much agree uh, to all those sentiments. What's one of your favorite books that has impacted you personally and one that has impacted you professionally? You know, I think that they're somewhat tied together. You know, it's kind of hard to, to identify one book that, you know, from a personal perspective, you know, I hope that all books kind of impact me to some degree on a personal level. And then, uh, you know, a lot of times reading books, you know, the, the world's kind of merged together. I, I think that Zero to One is probably one of the better books that can concisely paint the picture of, of one of the best investors that's out there and their contrarian view on the world and why, you know, why that, why, how, how that makes sense. But on the personal level, you, you, there's takeaways that, that, that are very impactful, like always challenging the status quo. And if you find yourself asking why, 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 why over and over and over again, you're probably onto something. I think that's applicable in business and in your personal life. And it's just one that, uh, you know, I think that there's some some lessons there that it means something different to every reader. But it's it's a, definitely a book that I encourage everyone to, to pick up and, and, and read through. I love that, asking why, why, why over again. What is your most recent investment and why are you excited about it? One of our most recent investments is a company called Sunday. It's a company that there's there's a lot for us to love about it. It's a direct to consumer company. They're based out of Boulder, Colorado. That that launched last April, and what they're doing is providing non toxic, all organic, basically trusted product for everything exterior home. So this is launching on the foothills of a, a very contentious Monsanto lawsuit with regards to Roundup and its link to causing cancer. And so the right time to launch a product that you know is something that's environmentally friendly, that's something that is a core value to consumers right now, something that's a core value to our millennials and to Gen Z buyers. And that's a shift. So it's kind of the perfect storm of, a, of, of several shifts that we're seeing in the market. So what Sunday is doing is they initially launched with a, with a non-toxic, essentially fertilizer, so lawn care, which is a very broken industry from, from the beginning. It's something that you know hasn't changed in decades. And it's uh, essentially you're putting poison on your lawn. There's very few options for which type of poison you want to use. And it turns out you actually don't need to put poison on your lawn. That the the efficacy of, of the product actually has to do with the timing, not the chemicals that are involved. So it's a perfect application of a direct-to-consumer brand because at the end of the day, going to Home Depot or Lowe's, there's no brand affinity that exists with, with Scott's or Bayer or any of these chemical companies. But that's where the opportunity lies is to create a brand to really capture kind of to be the trusted platform for consumers. So millennials are on average 33 years old right now. The average home buyer, first-time home buyer, is 34. So in the next year, you expect that the first-time home buyers, which is the target demographic for Sunday, to to really hit an all-time high. And it's something that you know this is the right time to launch a product uh, in this space. And it's something that you know we think it's it's a great narrative uh, that's resonating a lot with consumers. And so we're really excited about what the team over there is building, and um, you know really excited about their their future growth. I really, really like the fact that you brought up how important timing is. Yeah, absolutely. I think that you know t- timing plays a, a, a major role in a, in a lot of a lot of 
company's successes or failures and in, in regards to kind of uh, there's a lot of analogies you know that that get surfaced all the time about about companies that try to introduce a product and the, the, the timing just wasn't right and then it gets reintroduced 10 years later and it and it and it works tremendously well and I think that that has to do with kind of the market that target demographic and kind of what their core values are, if it it may have not resonated with the generations before. And so that's something that that's really important to to try and understand because that that's going to be a, an ultimate driver. And a perfect example of that is is we saw this shift take place where over the last few years, people moved from you know they want to be affiliated with brands that are rooted in the same values that they hold, but they would, pay a premium for something that was organic or non-toxic or something that was environmentally friendly to uh, now where it's so important to them. They're not buying products from brands that, that, that don't align with their values. So we're seeing this from big box retail all the way down to, you know, direct to consumer brands that they don't want to be associated with, with selling products. And so if you look at some large big box, big box stores, they'll be pulling products off the shelf that, that, are don't align with their values and the same happens with with the way that consumer purchasing uh, unfolds yeah no i agree what's one piece of advice that you have for founders of consumer companies so i think that you can't really underestimate the value of having some form of domain expertise and a, a very strong reason for why you quit doing what you were doing before to start this company you know we're starting to see uh in in just in consumer and in, in the ecosystem in general, you have a lot of founders that that are kind of looking and trying to come up with ideas to solve problems that weren't just presented to them as such a large issue that they have to quit their job to start this company. You know, it was kind of always in the cards that they wanted to start a company and they're just looking for the right idea. That That is, um, you know, I think that the you have to have a genuine level of curiosity and a real drive and passion to do whatever it takes to kind of solve this 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 issue that's so painful that that you know you're 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 willing to to give up everything that you have to to build something from scratch and overcome obstacles where the cards are definitely not stacked in your favor to to do that. So I think that that level of of genuine kind of curiosity and ambition comes off very quickly in in pitches. The advice that I would give is just, you know, people come in and be themselves and not to read too much into why a venture fund decides that they want to pursue that opportunity further or not. That's something that that really uh, I cannot stress enough. We've talked in previous episodes about that founder market fit. Why are you the person that's going to solve it? What's your actual own advantage? Well, Jordan, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show and and taking the time. Couldn't agree with you more. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure having Jordan on. I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. You can follow Jordan at Jordan Knopf on Twitter. It'll also be located in the show notes. If you'd like to follow along behind the scenes of the show, you can follow me at Mike Galbin at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. If you're enjoying these episodes, if you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as that increases the exposure of the podcast, that would be simply terrific. Until next time, folks.